Job chapter 16, we come to Job's reply. It says in verse 1, then Job answered and said, I have heard many things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth. And the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? But now he has worn me out. You have made desolate all my company. You have shriveled me up. And it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me. And bears witness to my face. He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. God has delivered me to the ungodly. And turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He also has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin. My face is flushed from weeping. And on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Although no violence is in my hands. And my prayer is pure. O earth, do not cover my blood. And let my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven. And my evidence is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Job replies to Eliphaz, and he is frustrated. He's frustrated with his friends. He's frustrated with the Lord. And once again, Job will defend himself against the denunciations of Eliphaz. The words will fly fast and furious, and tensions mount, and frustration escalates. And Job accuses his friends of being miserable comforters in verses 1 through 4. What would Job do if the situation were reversed? Job suggests that he would try to help in verse 5. Job feels hurt. He feels betrayed by both God and those who have turned against him in verses 6 through 18. 
And so he wanders out loud and cries out loud, do I have an advocate in heaven? Is there someone who will plead my case in verses 19 and 20 and 21 and 22? Job pleads for a comforter in verses 1 through 17. He begs for an intercessor. In verses 18, all the way to chapter 17, verse 2. And he'll continue to beg God to serve as his defender. To protect Job's innocence. And affirm Job's righteousness in the next chapter. And so in verses 1, 2, and 3, look what it says. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things, speaking of Eliphaz's speech. Miserable comforters are are you all. Shall words of wind have no end? Or what provokes you that you answer? Job is tired of the same old sermon. Job, get right with God. Job, repent of your sin. Job, turn back to God. Job, confess that there's something really, really wrong with you. Confess your sin. Confess your problem. Prepare to meet your maker. Prepare to die. And Job is worn out. He describes their speeches as Words of wind with no end. Job asks bluntly, what provokes you that you answer? It's an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew. It means, it means, what is wrong with you? Have you ever said that when you were so shocked and so surprised and someone says so, something so hurtful, so painful, so accusatory, so condemning. Why do they keep scolding Job? Why do they keep accusing him instead of listening to him? What is it that, rip, that makes it so that they won't try to comfort him? In the New American Commentary it says, and I'm going to quote a paragraph, it was so good, The writer says, quote, so far Job's friends have taught him nothing, have given him no usable advice, and in general have aggravated his condition rather than alleviated it. So he branded them miserable comforters. Miserable, by the way, translates a Hebrew word, a male. It's a word, it's one of the last words that Eliphaz had spoken Trouble in verse 15, verse 35. It's the same word. According to chapter 2, verse 11, these three had come to Job in order to sympathize with him, in order to comfort him. And to this point, there's been neither. The lesson is, quote, helpful advice is usually brief and encouraging, not lengthy, And judgmental, unquote. The the Hebrew word, by the way, for comfort is nacham. It it means, it's, it's, it's a beautiful word. It means 
to sigh with another. If you've ever heard someone go, that's what it means. It means it's an, it's an expression of sympathy. It's an expression of compassion. When Jacob thought Joseph was ripped to pieces by wild animals in Genesis chapter 37 verse 35. The text says his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him. Same word. In Ruth it's a picture of help. In Ruth chapter 2 verse 13 when she says to Boaz you have comforted me. Earlier Job said my bed shall comfort me in Job 7.13 in the sense of provide rest. And so with comfort comes a sense of sympathy, a sense of help, a sense of alleviation of rest. In Isaiah chapter 49 verse 13 it says the Lord, the Lord has comforted his people in the sense of Giving them assurance. The Hebrew word sometimes included the idea of tender affections. In Isaiah chapter 67 verse 13, the imagery is of a mother providing a compassionate care for her children. In Psalm 71 verse 21, it repeats it. There's this sense of courage involved in the word. In Isaiah 51 verse 12, I, even I, am he that comforts you. The idea reinforces you for the task at hand in order to accomplish it. Job is looking for comfort. He's in search of someone who will help him. And so he says that he desires to be a comfort. Look what it says in verse 4. Also I could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you, and I could shake my head at you. Verse 5. But I would strengthen you with my mouth. And the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. The NIV reads. If you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you. And I could shake my head at you. But my, my mouth would encourage you. You would receive comfort from my lips. I would bring you relief. What Job basically is saying look, is, if our situations were reversed, I wouldn't do this to you. He wants comfort and relief. And instead of comforting Job, remember Eliphaz has condemned him. The friends of Job believe that the reason why he is experiencing all of the things that is happening to him is because it's your fault, Job. You brought this on yourself. You must have done something. You must have done something. This just doesn't happen. People's lives just don't blow up. They don't just fall apart. They don't just disintegrate for no good reason. And the only reason we can come up with is you must have done something horrible. And so Job is in effect saying, how would you like it if our circumstances were reversed? What would you expect me to do 
you were in my shoes and if I were in your shoes. You know the song. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Before you accuse, criticize and abuse. You know it. Walk a mile in my shoes. I have a Native American friend who said, a man came up to another man and he said, I hope I get this right. Now I'm forgetting the joke. He, 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 it was about walking in another ma- man's sh- shoes. He, he was talking about, um, now I've forgotten it, walking a mile in a person's shoes, and he goes, and guess what? You're a mile away, and you still have his shoes. I, I can't remember how it goes. <laughs> That's probably not the insight we were looking for. The insight we're looking for isn't a bad joke. The insight we're looking for is asking a question. What what can we learn? What can we learn from Job's pain? You see, there's a big difference between words and words of comfort. Have you ever been confused at another person's pain or their difficulty and you were just overcome and you had no idea what to say? Well, guess what? When that happens, it's probably a good thing. When you don't know what to say, it's probably a good idea just to say nothing. People want answers, but wrong answers aren't helpful. Beware of pat answers. Beware of canned responses. When a person asks the question, why is this happening to me? The moment you believe that you might know the answer, you might find yourself in a particular position of misrepresenting the truth and misrepresenting God. Suffering can sometimes have more than one reason. Criticism and accusation rarely bring relief. And so put yourself in the other person's position. If you were facing the same circumstance, what would you want? How would you want people to respond to you? What would you do if you received the diagnosis of cancer? What would you do if it's your child that has just died? What would you do if you've lost your job and you've lost your income and the circumstances are horrible and painful? Job's insights and suggestions are coming from a person in pain. The preacher J.H. Jowett said, quote, God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. And now all of a sudden we understand when the New Testament says, perhaps this has happened so that you might be able to provide some relief, some measure of hope. Some comfort, some joy. Abraham Lincoln famously said, quote, To ease another's heartache is to forget your own. And there is a sense in which that is true, isn't it? The moment that you reach out to someone else, the moment that you hold their hand, the moment that you pray for their need, the moment that you comfort them, there is an immediate sense of relief for whatever sorrow you're facing. 
there's a huge difference between human comfort and the comfort that's divine. Martin Luther wrote, quote, Human comfort and divine comfort are of different natures. Human comfort consists in external, visible help, which a man may see and hold and feel. Divine comfort only words and promises where there is neither seeing or hearing or feeling. And if the roles were reversed, Job would comfort. He would encourage He would assure. He would provide affection. I'm going to even suggest to you courage. Do you know what he would do? He would use his significant resources in order to bring some measure of relief. But look what it says in verse 6. Comfort in the presence of pain. Look what it says. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? Do you understand the sentence that you just read? Job is in effect saying, if I remain silent, it doesn't help. If I speak, the pain remains. Keeping silent, if Job remains silent, the pain, the suffering... The loss lingers. So whether he keeps it in, whether he lets it out, there's bitterness, there's disappointment. If he keeps it in, the pain might crush him. If he lets it out and pleads for comfort and pleads for deliverance, there might be Some measure of comfort. There might be some measure of hope. Job knows that it's better to seek answers from God than to turn his back on the Lord. But it feels like when he's reached out to his friends, they have nothing kind to say. And that when he reaches his hands towards heaven, it's as if he's speaking to no one. And so look what it says in verse 7. But now he has worn me out. You have made me desolate. All my company. What's happening between verses 7 through 14 is the pain and the pressure and the fatigue are starting to catch up with him. And so now his attention, his focus, and his words constitute a prayer. Job knows that he's not guilty of deliberate sin. He knows That there's no unconfessed issue. As far as Job is concerned, he's confessed all known sin. He's innocent before God, yet the suffering continues. And so he's worn out. He's he's tired of, of playing the picture in his mind over and over and over again. Can you imagine as you're trying to determine, trying to figure out what's going on and why is this happening to me? If you've ever asked the question, Lord, why is this happening to me? And you start asking it over and over again and you it starts to preoccupy you it's what you think about when you wake up it's what you live for throughout the day it's what you think about when you go to bed at night job is worn out and he is discouraged he feels weak and abandoned and bankrupt and so he's going to give seven graphic images 
in order to describe exactly how he feels. The first, when he says, you have made desolate all my company, in verse 7. You remember what that means. My children are gone. My job, my business, my wealth is gone. My health is gone. It's all gone. Job is saying, you've taken away everything. The people I love, my ability to make a a living, everything is gone. Is Job accusing God of things that aren't true? Job presses God to answer him. To give an explanation for the devastation. He's saying out loud what you've said quietly under your breath when no one else was listening. Is God kind? Is God cruel? Is God unfair? Job feels all alone. And loneliness might be the most painful kind of suffering where you don't have anyone to hold your hand. You don't have anyone to talk to. You don't have anyone to cry out to. And so look what it says in verse 8. You have shriveled me up and it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and it bears witness to my face. When it says you've shriveled me up, Job feels like God has devastated his health. Job is emaciated, dehydrated. That's what the word shriveled up means. He most likely has had problems holding down food or drinking water. Job is in effect saying... Look at me. I'm wasting away right before your eyes. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody waste away right before your eyes. If you've ever known a person who's been diagnosed with cancer. Maybe you've known someone who is big and strong. And all of a sudden they've been afflicted with cancer. And this big, strong person starts to shrivel up. He looks like, or she looks like a person who would would fit neatly in a a Jewish concentration camp. A skull with skin wrapped around it. That's what Job is saying. You've taken everything away from me, number one. You've devastated my health, number two. He's skin and bones. In verse 9 it says... He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. Number three, Job feels like God is attacking him. The picture is tearing him apart. It's like an animal that fixes its eye on on its prey. And look what he says. He tears me in his wrath and he hates me. Does God hate Job? No. No. Does Job feel like God hates him? Yeah. That's exactly how he feels. Well, why? Why do you feel that way, Job? He gives the reason. He feels like God is staring down from heaven and that God has rejected him and refused him 
and refused his pleas for some kind of relief. And in verse 10, look what it says. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. You know what that means. When it says they gape at me, it means they stare. People are staring. It's the same image that's given in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus hangs suspended on the cross. He is suspended between two thieves. And the Bible says, and they gaped at him. He's saying that people are staring at me, number four. People are slapping me. They've gathered against me. And again, we see something. Now, all of a sudden, a dim picture starts to emerge. Have you ever seen a silhouette? A dark figure against a bright background. You see a shadow. You see a silhouette. Or some of you know what a cameo is. Where, they will, where they'll engrave a piece of rock or stone and they'll put an image in it. This becomes a prophetic picture, I think, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Job suggests that people are abusing him and mocking him because of his dreadful condition. And number, in verse 11, look what it says. God has delivered me to the ungodly. He's turned me over to the hands of the wicked. When it says, God has delivered me to the ungodly, the picture extends to the ungodly. It would appear that the sarcasm, the criticism is coming from all quarters now. People are laughing. They're taking perverse pleasure in seeing a righteous man stumble and fall. And many Bibles teachers have found in verses 10 and 11, again, that glimpse that portrait of Jesus remember in Matthew 15 29 Jesus is mocked and scorned Isaiah chapter 50 and Matthew chapter 26 Jesus is slapped in Psalm 22 verses 13 through 16 it says that that Jesus the Messiah is going to be turned over to evil men it's as if Job Before there ever was a Genesis, before there ever was an Exodus, a Leviticus, or a Numbers, or a Deuteronomy, Moses is still 500 years in the future. David and Solomon are still 800 years into the future. Jesus is still 1,800 years into the future. And Job becomes a picture of a person who is mocked and scorned and slapped and turned over to evil men. In verse 12 it says, I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He has also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. That's number five. Job paints a picture of a man who's being attacked by an intruder. And the image is someone who gets grabbed by the throat. And they start shaking him and shaking him until he's sh- shaken to pieces. And here's part of the point. An intruder comes upon you. He grabs you. He grabs you by the throat and he starts to shake you. But nothing, nothing, nothing in Job's life has prepared him for this attack. 
You know, it's one thing to be caught down on, on an alleyway down on Colfax. But it's another thing to be jumped at Southwest Plaza. I mean, when you're in the suburbs and, and when you're in, in this place where, where you don't expect crime and you don't expect holdups and you don't expect this kind of stuff, Job is living a life where he doesn't expect this. He loves the Lord. He worships the Lord. He sacrifices to the Lord. His generous business employs literally hundreds of people. Job is a thoughtful, kind, generous man. And nothing has prepared him for this. In verse 13 it says, His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. Job, that's number six. Job sees himself surrounded by archers. Here's the picture. Job is surrounded by our archers. They're letting the, the, the arrows fly. He's being wounded and pierced. One of the, the, the arrows pierces his body. It opens him up. It pierces his gallbladder. His bodily fluids are running down to the ground. His vital organs are leaking. Somehow he's holding on to life. He feels like he's been mortally wounded. He's dying and nothing can save him. In verse 14 it says, He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. That's number seven. This is the picture of an unrelenting enemy, a warrior who charges again and again and again, and he never gives up. This is an unrelenting opposition where the loss is piled on top of the loss and the tragedy is piled on top of the tragedy and the suffering is piled on top of the of the suffering and the pain is piled on top of the pain until there is nothing, nothing, nothing left. He's broken. He's shattered. There is not one molecule of personal dignity or pride that's left. And so he talks about comfort. When you are broken, when you are humiliated, when you have nothing. In verse 15, when it says, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust, my face is flushed from weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. This is the, the picture of humiliation and heartbreak. When, when Job, read it for yourself, when he says, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin. In the ancient world, when there was a tragedy, when there was a horror, when there was a catastrophe, they would rend their garments, they would put on sackcloth, they would take ashes and they would throw it on top of their head. And so when Job says, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin, it doesn't simply mean I'm in mourning. It means 
I'm in a permanent state of mourning. When you sew the sackcloth on your skin, the image and the picture is, I'll never be the same. I'll never have a day where I get to celebrate and cheer and laugh. There there will never be a day where he doesn't think about his children who are gone. There will never be a day. And so in the face of this catastrophe, Job is flushed, bright red. In other words, he's wept and wept and he's kept on weeping. His face is glowing bright red. His eyes are sunken and surrounded by shadows. He is a man whose strength and pride is gone. It is the picture of brokenness. And so in verse 17, he prays and he pleads for comfort. In verse 17, it says, although no violence is in my hands and my prayer is pure. Do you, again, you understand what that means? Although no, no violence is in my hands. It's his way of saying he's innocent. He's never hurt anyone. He's never taken his hand And struck anyone. He prays. He pleads. He cries. He's innocent of known sin. His prayers are pure. But his claims don't seem to matter to God. He's blameless. And righteous. But none of that seems to matter. He's never hurt anyone. But that doesn't seem to matter. And so he cries again. Why are you so far away? Why do you seem so uncaring? Why are you so unconcerned? In verse 18 when he says, O earth, do not cover my blood and let my cry have no resting place. What is Job doing? Job's cried to heaven. Now he's crying crying to the earth. It's as if Job is saying, Will you listen to me? Nothing. He says to the planet on which he is walking and and, and the trash heap on which he lies. It's, It's as if he's speaking to the earth. He desperately wants to hear from someone, anyone, anything that will be on his side. So when he says, oh earth, do not cover up my blood. What does that mean? It's the blood that he's shed because of the suffering that he's experienced, which bears testimony to the reality that something is wrong. It's an idiomatic expression in that culture which says look when you've shed blood it's telling you a story and so he's asking the earth itself to testify just like what we'll later read in the book of Genesis remember when Cain slays Abel and his blood is on the dirt and the Lord asks Cain where's your brother and Cain says am I my brother's keeper And the Lord says, your brother's blood is crying out to me. Even in that ancient world, they knew that suffering and pain and horror had a testimony. Job asks if anyone, will anyone, will anyone bear witness to his righteous character, to his pure heart? 
What will happen if no one will confirm his innocence? What will Job do? In part, what Job is asking is for humanity and history to remember that he was innocent. And so he says in verse 19, Surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. Do you understand what he's saying? Surely there's someone up there. Surely someone sees what's going on down here. Surely there is someone who is taking record and taking note, who's evaluating my life, who is examining my circumstances, who is keeping record, someone who sees my pain, someone who understands my heart, someone who is aware of my circumstance. And so he's longing, he's asking for an advocate, an intercessor, someone in heaven. Isn't there someone there who will plead his case? Do you know what he's doing? He's crying for a savior. Job could only hope and anticipate a Messiah. And you see what's really interesting. Now remember, this is the oldest book in the Bible, 1800 BC, before there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is a person who's living his life and he's evaluating his circumstances and he's praying the same kind of prayer and he has the same kind of cries that is repeated in each and every generation. Is there someone up there keeping record, keeping score? Is there anyone who knows, who really understands what's going on down here? Job wants a savior. Isn't that what the world really wants? Doesn't the whole world want to know whether or not there is someone who will plead their case, who will understand their circumstances, and who will beg God to help them through this difficult thing called life? In verse 20, he says, my friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears To God. In other words, Job is saying, I don't have any friends. I don't have anyone. All of those bridges are gone. They're all burnt. Here's what I do. I cry all the time to God. And then we remember the New Testament. We remember the New Testament where Jesus is the friend of sinners. That Jesus understands Job's pain and agony and cruel treatment. And in verse 21, Job says, Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. Job envisions a savior who's a human being. Who understands what it means to be a human being. Who can reach out. 
and talk to God and touch God. Job envisions a savior, an intercessor, someone who can represent. Isn't there someone? Isn't there someone who can plead with God the way a man can beg for his neighbor's life? Isn't there someone, when Job spoke these words, he could imagine, he could imagine an advocate, an intercessor, a mediator. What kind of an advocate, an intercessor would he have to be? Someone who has access to God but still has access to man. Who understands the pain and the problems that human beings face. But also understands the righteousness and the holiness of God. Fast forward. Into what you already know. Jesus is our mediator. Remember what a mediator is. It's a go-between. It's a representative. So what does that mean? Remember what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, when it says, Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all men. Even Job? Even all of the people who were born prior to the life and the death and the crucifixion of Jesus? What do we do with Adam? And what do we do with Enoch? And what do we do... With Moses and Jonah and what do we do with all of these people in time and space who just looked forward, who looked into the future for someone who would serve in this role? This is what we believe as Christians. You see, when Jesus died on the cross in anticipation of that sacrifice and of that life, the Bible says that the men and women of God anticipated a time when God would keep his promises. And we look back in history at a time when God kept his promise. Jesus bridges the chasm. Jesus represents us before God. He is our high priest. John Calvin understood Christ's role as mediator this way. He wrote, quote, Christ's work as mediator was unique. It was to restore us to divine favor and to make us sons of God instead of sons of men, heirs of a heavenly kingdom instead of heirs of hell, unquote. And look what it says in verse 22. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. I think you know what this means. Once again, Job is thinking about death. Here's what we've discovered, haven't we? That people in pain, people who are suffering, people who are cut off, people who are detached... They think about death a lot because for them, they think that death is a respite from the pain. They see death as a portal, a doorway, 
some place that isn't like this place. They see death as a comfort. Job needs a mediator. He needs an intercessor. He needs an advocate. And one of the things that you have to think about in verse 22, for when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying I I have days, possibly months, maybe a few years to live. But here is the point that he's making. I need this advocate now. I need this intercessor now. I need this person now before I take the journey. Job knew in his spirit that his time was short. He's overwhelmed by sadness. If only accusations could be comfort and encouragement. You know, Charles Spurgeon would tell his congregation... I will greatly comfort you if you can see God's hand in both your losses and your crosses. It was Spurgeon's way of saying, you know that emptiness right now? You know that darkness right now? You know that pain right now? You know that suffering right now? It could very well be that God is bringing you to a place of humility and brokenness so that you'll cry out to him, so that you will depend upon him, so that you will trust him. You see, there's comfort in Christ. Andrew Murray said, in Christ, the heart of the Father is revealed. And higher comfort there cannot be than to rest in the Father's heart. This is exactly what Job wants. He wants to be able to rest in the heart of God. By the way, what is comfort supposed to do? If it's supposed to strengthen, if it's supposed to encourage, if it's supposed to give courage, if it's supposed to make a provision, let me ask you a kind of a final question. Does comfort always make the pain go away? No. No, not always. Job's world is falling apart. And Job has experienced the full panoply of emotions. He has felt agony. He has felt anger. He has felt depression. He has felt doubt. He has felt despair. He has felt hostility. He has felt frustration. But out of all of the things that he has felt, the most Painful of all is this loneliness, being disconnected from heaven and from everyone around him. And you see, this is actually the story of the gospel. Because Job's trial and Job's suffering and Job, an innocent man, being unjustly made an example that we are just trying to understand. 
we begin to understand that he needs an intercessor and he needs an advocate. He needs someone who will represent him. He needs someone who will defend him. He needs someone who will protect him. He will need someone who will protect him when he's accused and afflicted. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He is your protector and your mediator and your representative Because Jesus defends you before God and answers the accusation of Satan. Because remember Satan's accusation? Does Job serve you for nothing? Let me get my hands on him and see how quickly he denies you. Jesus was sinless and perfect. Jesus is the perfect intercessor and the perfect mediator and the perfect advocate. The Bible says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. You know what that means? Jesus never stops praying for you. When you're at church, he's praying for you. When you're not at church, he's still praying for you. When you're watching TV... He's praying for you. When the Broncos are winning the Super Bowl, he's still praying for you. When you go to sleep, he's praying for you. When you wake up, he's praying for you. He never stops defending. He never stops advocating. He never stops protecting. He never stops loving. And his intercession is perpetual. In John 14, 16, he says, And I will pray the Father. And he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. And Job's prayer and Job's cry and Job's longing will be answered. But there'll be more next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look at this book and we see these words and we see the cries of pain and we see the great difficulty. And Heavenly Father, again, we pray that we would take Job's words seriously. That, Lord, we would want to begin to understand People in pain, people who are suffering, people who are down, people who are out, people who are living lives of difficulty and pain and exasperation, people who have been cut off from family and friends, people who are lonely. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would make us comforting men and women. People who offer hope and grace. Who offer courage. But most of all, who offer an intercessor, a mediator, an advocate. Lord, that we would point people to Jesus, our mediator, our advocate. 
our intercessor. In Jesus' name, amen.